Let's, uh, let's pause and pray with me that God would use this time this morning to speak to us. Father, we see in our text today, Jesus says, Lazarus is dead and I am glad. That sounds harsh and we want to be intellectually honest with ourselves. How can love allow death? Many of us have experienced much of that even in the last few days. God, I pray that you would shine light and truth on this text, that you would help us to see what it is that you're trying to teach here. Pray that you would use me, and I thank you that the air turned off. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Can you hear a difference there? It's significant for me. Um, the author of John has now revealed seven, not one, not two, not three, but seven signs that point to Jesus being the true Messiah. The seventh and final sign is the one that we read about, or that uh, Greg just read in John 11. It is of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Perhaps, you know, one of the scariest things about life, if we're just honest with ourselves, is the moments that we stop and think about our own death. And uh, it's interesting that Jesus goes out of his way, even in our text here today, to speak to this very thing. Because I don't think this is as much about Lazarus' death as it is about Jesus and the fact that he has the power to resurrect. And so the story is not as much about Lazarus and his sisters as it is about Jesus and the resurrection. And so it is also interesting, and I'm, I'm, I don't get into numerology or the study of these numbers, but seven, the number seven, is often referred in the Bible and in uh, the Genesis creation. On the seventh day, God rested and everything was complete. The seventh number, the number, is a number of completion. Jesus performed not one, not two, not three, but seven miracles. He had completed his miracles at this point, this last miracle with Lazarus. And so it's important to note that, and it's not a mistake. If you're interested on the screens, you should be able to see. The seven signs are one, Changing water to wine, all of these in the first 11 chapters. Healing the royal official son, healing the paralytic, feeding the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, healing the man that was born blind, the beggar at the gate, and then this last one that we'll read about today, the raising of Lazarus in John 11. Like I said, the narrative here in chapter 11 is built to tell us about Jesus, not so much about Lazarus. In John 9, if you remember the story about uh, the beggar that was born blind, the, uh, the people asked the question about this blind man, so who sinned? Was it, was it him 
or was it his parents? And you may remember the answer from Jesus was, it was neither one of them. He was blind that the works of God may be seen. This man was blind that the works of God may be seen. And so I asked the question there, did God allow this man's blindness? Take it a step further. Does God allow pain and suffering into your life? I think most certainly he does. Then the question becomes, how can he be good if he allows pain and suffering into my life? And the question is raised in the topic or the title of my sermon, how can love allow death? You could say, how could love allow pain and suffering? It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus allows his closest friends, and he goes, he goes to great length in John 11 to share how he was close to these sisters and to Lazarus. Jesus allows his closest friends to suffer real loss and even death when he could have stopped it. See, in my family, with my kids, and I would be willing to bet this is probably true for you too, the ones that I love the most, I go out of my way, as you probably do, to prevent them from encountering loss, to prevent them from suffering, to prevent them from going through pain, and certainly, if I could, to prevent them from death. But here we have in our story Jesus not doing that. Why would Jesus not stop the cycle of pain and suffering? In writing, John, John intends for us to see this, the author John, that uh, the question that you, re you have to ask if you're going to be intellectually honest with the text is how is that love to allow his friend to die and then the pain and the grief that the sisters go through over losing their son? How can that be love? Look with me in your text at John 11, 2 and 3. In John 11, 2 through 3, it says, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. I want to emphasize a couple of things here. John, the author, is going out of his way to show us that Jesus, indeed, these were people that were close to him. And he's doing that for a reason. He wants us to know these people were close to him, and yet he allows suffering and even death in this situation. Also, just for note, John mentions that Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. But the truth is, John hasn't told that story yet. That actually happens over in chapter 12. So it's not even in the record yet, though he mentions it. So how does John know that? He knows it from what the theologians call the synoptic gospels. It's a synopsis of, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
those three Gospels capture that story, and those three Gospels kind of build off of one another more than John. John is almost seen as an independent Gospel, not a part of the Synoptic Gospels. And so he knows that from that. So he tells the story even, or he, he quotes that even before he tells the story, which is in the next chapter. John is making a point here for the reader, and it is that Jesus loves these people. Look at John eleven three. Again, it says, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And John eleven five. now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus clearly cares for this family. And then if you keep following down because of confusion, I want to try to make some things clear. In John 11, 4 through 6, he says some things that need to be kind of untangled. Look, look at what Jesus says here. He says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. That's kind of confusing. Because we know that Lazarus does die. It is for the glory of God. Again, that sounds like John 9. This illness is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, and this is the interesting thing here, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So when he hears that he is ill, he stays two days longer in the place where he was. Interesting. Um, why say it this way? Why say this illness does not lead to death if, if we know Lazarus does indeed die? That's confusing. Jesus could say this in that way, that it doesn't lead to death, in the sense that it did not ultimately lead to death, but it did lead through death to being raised in just a few days to life. So he could say it that way because it was a temporary thing. So if you read on, it says he, he, says, uh, he, he is asleep. So when he heard this... Um, the, the idea of falling asleep is another way that Jesus refers to it. In the Old Testament, they would say you were asleep with the fathers. And so in 1 Corinthians 2.10 and 1 Kings and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, occasionally death was compared to deep sleep from which people would one day be awakened. So... In John eleven six, look look in your text there at John eleven six. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That doesn't sound very loving. If perhaps he would have left immediately, perhaps he could have got there and saved him before he died. But the commentators, when you look at this passage, it was a common belief among the Jewish culture that if once somebody died, be it true or not, it was a belief, their soul would stay for about three days. But on the fourth day, the body would begin to decompose. The body would begin to rot. 
And so on that fourth day, the soul would leave, recognizing no chance. And so could it be that Jesus knew that this was the thinking of the culture, and he waited to the fourth day to say, this man is completely dead, so that when he does come and perform the miracle of raising Lazarus, there's no question because the body was decomposing. And it says it in our text later, don't move the stone, there'll be a stench. And so I actually have enjoyed through the years a scene in a movie, and uh, sorry about that, I'm not sure what that is. Um, but the movie is Princess Bride. And uh, the scene in the movie has Billy Crystal, and he works as this, uh, this miracle max. He's like this witch doctor, and Wesley, the prince, is dead, and they take Wesley to Miracle Max at his place, and Miracle Max says, um, he's mostly dead, which is slightly alive. <laughs> and so he brings Wesley back, and he also says, if someone, Miracle Max says, if someone is all the way dead, there's only one thing you can do and that is, go through his clothes for loose change. <laughs> well, in this case, Jesus waited to make sure he's all the way dead. And he wanted the Jewish people to know he's all the way dead. And so he comes back in John eleven fourteen and 15. Jesus tells them, he says, Then Jesus told them plainly, talking about his disciples, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad. It's a crazy word. I was there that I was not there. I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Lazarus has died, and I'm glad I wasn't there. But why? That you would believe. Why? that they might believe. But, but didn't the disciples of Jesus already believe? That's kind of an odd statement to be saying about the disciples. They are, they're already following Jesus. So why would he say it that way? Jesus knew it was only a short time before he would be crucified for the sins of his people. And that if he got there early enough to save Lazarus before he died, it would not have the impact that raising a man from the dead would have. Like, you could almost write it off like he was just mostly dead, and Jesus helped him, and he came back. And it's kind of a miracle, but not really. So this seventh miracle, Jesus waits and makes sure they know he's dead. There's a stench to the body already, and I'm going to raise him from the dead, and my disciples will be strengthened in their belief that indeed I am the Messiah. So that is what happens. He says that he wants them to see the glory of God, and, and we talk about that a good bit. The glory of God, just as a reminder, it is the honor, it is the majesty, it is the power, it is the beauty, it is the justice, it is the goodness. 
God is the only good, truly good being in the world. The rest of us are sinful. To see, to be near a good God like this would be the greatest blessing you could ever have. And so, to answer my question from the sermon title, how can love allow death? This is my best shot at the answer. Love does let Lazarus die. Love lets him die because his death will help them see in more ways than they know the glory of God. So what is love? What does it mean to be loved by Jesus? Love means giving us what we need most. Love means giving us what we need most. And what we need most is not healing or healing, but a full and endless experience of the glory of God. Love means giving us what will bring us the fullest and most complete joy. And what is that? What will give you full and eternal joy? The answer is in our text, and it's clear. A revelation to your soul of the glory of God. It is seeing. It is seeing God for who He really is. It is admiring and marveling at and savoring the glory of God in Jesus Christ. When someone is willing to die, or in this case, let your brother die, in the sister's case, to give you that, they love you. And here's the, the summary of what I believe love really is. Love is doing whatever you have to do to help people see and treasure the glory of God as their supreme joy. Love is doing whatever you have to do to help people see and treasure the glory of God as their supreme joy. Because that is the ultimate good in the world. If you see that, if you see him for who he is, even if it costs a death, even if it costs a life, if it costs pain and suffering, but people see the goodness and the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God, then it is worth it. Then it is worth it. What could be more? Our greatest need in this life is not to be healed physically. It is not to feel good about ourselves. Our greatest need is to see God's glory and to savor it. To trust his work on the cross and be forgiven of our sin problem. So Lazarus is dead and I am glad. I'm glad for you. Because we read of this story and we have to ask the question, how could death be good? Death can only be good if it points us to our Savior. 
Death can only be good if it takes us out of the punishment of our sin and delivers us to forgiveness of our sin. And that is what Jesus is saying here. The question, though, that I have when I read this is how can we help people see the glory of God if I can't perform miracles? How do I help my family? How do I help my friends? How do I help my neighbors see the glory of God if indeed it is the greatest thing they could ever see, God for who he really is? How do I do that if I can't do the miracles? I can't raise people from the dead. How do you do that? Well, if you would, flip with me, and I may have it on the screens, but eight, Romans 8, 27, to answer my question, how can we help people see the greatest thing that they could ever see? And here it is. It says, he who searches hearts, it's talking about the Holy Spirit, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, or God, I should say, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then 1 Corinthians 2, 4. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And then I want you to, I want you to get this, so I'm going to read one more verse in John 16, 7 through 9. We can't do miracles... But look at this. This is Jesus telling the disciples, I'm about to have to leave. So this is what I'm going to do for you. You're, you're not going to be able to do the miracles that I did. But listen to what he's going to tell them. Nevertheless, in John 16, 7 through 9, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. What? How could it be to my advantage that you're leaving? He says, For if I do not go away, the Helper, which is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And 1 Corinthians 2.14 says it this way. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit. What's the natural person? It's the person that doesn't have the Holy Spirit in them. Every one of us is born the natural person. So when the Scripture says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They don't just not accept it. The things of God are foolish to them. The Bible says that clearly. So when... People you know who aren't Christians look at you like you're an idiot for believing what you believe. Just know the Bible's already told you they're going to do that. It's right there. For they are folly to them, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They're spiritually unable. How do they get able? If I can't do a miracle and raise somebody from the dead, how does somebody that is not a Christian Become able to become a Christian. It's in John 16, 7 through 9. The Holy Spirit will come and do the miracle on the heart of a person. And they will be convicted of their sin. You ever wonder why someone does become a Christian? When they think you know, their whole life it's folly, it's silliness. 
It's because the Holy Spirit comes and He works and He does a miracle. And only the Holy Spirit can do the spiritual miracle of raising a spiritual Lazarus from death to life. So I don't have to do the miracle. The miracle is in me. I'm a Christian. The Holy Spirit of God resides in me. He resides in you. And so because you have the Holy Spirit, God can do miraculous things through you. I have seen, and maybe some of you have seen, others through my testimony place their faith in Christ and watch their life turn and do a 180 from going towards sin and, and the whole you know, the world and turn and come and chase after God and truth and righteousness. That's a miracle. That's like raising Lazarus from the dead. So, what the next question that I have, though, when I look at this text is why can't, why can't we see more easily, more readily, and be satisfied with or in the glory of God? Why can't we do that? Because if I'm honest with you, for 20 years at least, I was not a Christian, and I did not see the glory of God. I was bored with church. I was bored with the Bible. I thought it was the most irrelevant thing on the planet. I couldn't see his goodness. I could not see his presence. I could not even see the relevance of it. It's truth, the freedom, the grace. God had to intervene by his power. So Jesus says, Lazarus is dead and I'm glad I'm glad because through this, you're going to believe. You're going to see a miracle with your own eyes, and you're going to believe. But also, the second reason, why can't we see and be satisfied with, with God and his glory? One is we don't believe. If you don't believe, you will not see the glory of God. It's in our text in John 11. If you believe, you will see the glory of God, is what Jesus told the daughters, the sisters. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. But if you don't believe, what happens? Well, you don't see the glory of God. You just keep going through your life, and you, you perhaps never see the glory of God. But the second problem, I think more Christians struggle with it. And if you look at our chapter, we didn't read this in the beginning, but John 11, 47 through 48. Look at, look at this text and see if you can tell why some people don't see the glory of God and are not satisfied. This is what it says. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Listen to how they're talking. He says, if we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And the Romans will come and listen. Here it is. You wonder why you're not deeply satisfied maybe in God? This may be a clue. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see, they're holding on to something else for their deepest satisfaction. Our place here 
is referring, it's the Jewish religious leaders. They're referring to their synagogues. The Romans will come and take away our place, our synagogues. And they'll also take away our nation, the thing that we find our most comfort and our most joy and our most satisfaction in. Where do you find your deepest joy? Where is your deepest satisfaction? If it is not in God, but rather in one of his gifts, like a position or wealth or work or a nation, then we will block the view of God's glory and we'll aimlessly begin an empty quest for happiness that will steal life from us ultimately. Just as a car has been traditionally, I notice I said traditionally, made to run on gas, so the human machine is made to run on God and God alone. And when we try to run the human machine on positions and titles and approval and significance and other things, it breaks down. It will not run. Ultimately, John Piper said it best, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. He is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. And how could that not be? How could it not be? To think that He's my God, but I really don't want a whole lot to do with Him except I do go to church on Sunday, but the rest of the week, I don't interact with him. I don't talk to him. I don't really want any of that. I just kind of want the benefits of it. I think that if we're thinking about going to heaven and Jesus and knowing him and being with him isn't at the forefront of those thoughts. It's just about being saved from hell. I don't think we really know Christ. And if you don't really know Christ, you're not going to heaven. You're missing the whole thing. The whole thing is about a relationship with him. It's not just about escaping the flames of hell. And so, how do you know what else it is that you're satisfied in other than God? How do you discern that? Because I'll be willing to bet me and everybody here have places that we run for our satisfaction. So several years ago, I decided one of the ways I was going to attack this was I was going to fast. And during my fast, I was going to say, God, where is it that I'm finding satisfaction outside of you? And in this fast, it was a different kind of fast. I asked myself the question, Clint, what is one thing you really, really like and you probably can't do without? That's what you need to fast from. And I thought, no, that's not God. That's just indigestion or something. I, I don't need to fast from that. But you know what it was? And this sounds so silly and so small, but it was coffee. For me, I don't know about you, but I've been drinking coffee every morning, afternoon, and night 
for years. I love coffee. I don't think I can live without coffee. And so at this point years ago, I said, all right, it's coffee. God, I'm not going to do coffee. It just about killed me. I had headaches just pounding by noon. And I just wanted to stop anywhere and get a cup of coffee. But I kept praying, God, I want you more than I want a cup of coffee. God, I want you more symbolically than I want anything else. Will you show me your glory? You say in your word, if you believe, you will see my glory. What about you? Would you be willing to give up something you really like? If nothing else, just to say to God, God, I want you more than that. I want you more than anything. I'll go without a meal. I'll go without three days of meals. I'll do this, whatever it is for you. Maybe it's television. Just, just saying, I'm not watching television for a few days to say, God, I want you more than I want to be entertained. I want you more than anything. Will you show up and help me see you in this? In, in closing, this story teaches us Two things about God's timing and God's delaying. The first is that they are inevitable. God is working off a different clock. And you're often going to feel, as I do, that's not the timing, God. I've been praying and praying and hoping and hoping, and you're not showing up when I want you to. Since we're finite creatures, we are mostly unaware of the circumstances which surround the events taking place in our lives and those others around us, as well as the consequences which result from them. Only God is omniscient, meaning only God is all-knowing, only Him. Since our desires are not fully renewed, when we're, when we're with him in heaven, our desires will be renewed. Even if we were aware of all the implications, there's no guarantee that we would choose only what was of the highest good for ourselves and for everybody else. Our imperfect desires also make us want immediate answers. And render us as unprepared for the patient ripening of God's plans. His delays, however, do not contradict his love. The second point is God's delays are not final. He will come. He will. In his own time, in his own way. No doubt that will frequently be later than what we would have chosen. From his divine perspective, however, it will be the right time. God is the best of timekeepers. He created time. He never, never is late for an appointment.
So we should pray that God would do whatever he needs to do to show us and our loved ones his glory. They and we may have to go through hard times to see him for who he really is. This world and our flesh bind, uh, blind us from seeing and savoring Christ. And so I ask you to consider fasting and asking God to reveal to you where is your treasure? What is your treasure? Is he really your treasure? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him.